The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to read a familiar passage. It's in chapter 5, verses... Well, let's go verses 22 to the end of the chapter. 22 to the end of the chapter. And there we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his himself, he who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, and it's profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Our God and Father, these indeed are very weighty verses. The topic of Christ loving the church is far beyond what our minds can grasp in totality, but we thank you that, you've, uh, that it is true, and we thank you that you've recorded it for us. We pray that we can glean some of it, even as we sang, show us Christ in a greater way. Uh, Lord, that our own hearts would be so filled with him, that are saturated in our souls with who he is and what he has done, and that his love would come out of us in ways that we haven't seen before. So Lord, please open our minds, open our hearts, change us where we need to change, move us where we need to move, and do it for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the verses we just read, Paul lays down the roles of a husband and a wife and how they should function in marriage. And he says in verses 22 to 24, wives should submit to their husbands uh, and to their husband's authority. Uh, and that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And the husband's headship is a God-given role in accord with God's created order and design. And wives are to submit to their husband's authority as to the Lord. So it pleases God that wives submit to their own husbands even as they ultimately submit to him. Then in verses 25 to 33, Paul deals with husbands and he says they are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. And there were three Greek words Paul could have used for the word love. He could have used the word eros, which means erotic love, but he didn't. He could have used the word phileo, which is a brotherly love. We get the word Philadelphia from that, but he didn't. He used the word agape, agape love, uh, which is the highest love one could have for another. It is an, an unconditional love. It is a sacrificial love. It's the kind of love Jesus had for the church. So it is a selfless and a giving love, and it cost him something to give it. 
And it's a love that gives whether one deserves it or not, or whether or not they, they love you back. So it's a love that gives without expecting to receive anything in return. And, and Paul says the husband was not only to love her as Christ loved the church, but he is to love her as he loves his own body because she is one flesh with him. And, and Paul says uh, the marriage union is a picture or represents a much greater union, which is Christ and the church. And as the husband and wife are now one body, the church and Christ are one body of which he is the head, and which he nourishes, and which he cherishes. Uh, and what I'd like to consider today, and really try to scratch the surface, is of Christ's love for the church, and this glorious union between him and the church. And these are really deep waters here. In fact, Paul says, this is a great mystery. It's a great mystery concerning Christ and the church, and I pray we'll glean a glimpse of it. And so with the Lord's help, let us look at three aspects of Christ's love for the church. First, uh, the proof of Christ's love for the church. Secondly, the purpose of Christ's love for the church. And lastly, the union from Christ's love for the church. And so let's look at the proof of his love for the church in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, there's no question that Christ loves his people. They're a love gift from the Father to the Son given to him before the world began. And they are his body, as we will see in verse 30. They are his sheep, we're told. They are his bride, we're told. And he loves his bride, and he loves his bride more than any husband could ever love his wife. And it was his love for her that brought him into this world, through the virgin's womb, to take on flesh and to become one of us. It was his love for her that moved him to leave the glory which he had with his father, to leave heaven, and to veil his deity for some 30 years here. And to come into a sin-sick world that was twisted and blinded by the wicked one. So love brought him into this world to live a perfectly holy and blameless life as a man. And then to trade places with us and go to the cross where 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So divine justice and divine wrath were placed on Jesus as he substituted himself for the wages of our sin. Where he suffered God's punishment for our sins. Where he paid our hell for us. Well, this is proof. This is the proof of his love for the church, that he died for her. Or, or as Paul says in verse 25, he gave himself for her. He gave himself for her. You know, you can tell someone you love them. I love you, man. I love you. I love you. You can do that. You can write it on cards. You can send it on emails, send out texts, get it tattooed on your body. I love you, my wife. But the proof of love is action. It is action. Right? So it's not a, a feeling we're talking about, but a giving of self. It's a giving of self. If someone says they love you, but they will not help you when the chips are down, or they're too busy, they're just too busy for you, or don't even have time to listen to you, you gotta ask yourself, do you really love me? Do you really love me? So don't just say you love me, show me you love me. And Jesus showed us he loved us by giving himself for us. He said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. No greater love than that. 
And Jesus laid down his life for us. He gave it for us. And the word gave means to willingly give oneself over to another's power or authority, right? No one took his life from him. He gave it freely. He said in John 10, 11, that, that he is the good shepherd and that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In John 6, 51, he said that he is the bread of life and, and, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then in Matthew 20, 28, he said that he came to give his life, to give his life a ransom for many. And there are many other verses which tell us that he willingly, willingly died for his people. So he willingly submitted himself to the curse of the law. All right, so, so the curse of the law might be removed from us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? Having become a curse for us. He took it for us. He willingly gave himself up to the cruelty and the savagery of the cross, fully knowing the immeasurable suffering that he was going to be subject to. Remember the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying and what was he doing? Because he knows what's coming and in his humanity, in his humanity, he's racked with fear, knowing the wrath of God that's going to come upon him the next day. He knows what's coming. He knows the wrath of God. He knows how God hates sin. And in his humanity, he was terrified to face it. And he sweats as it were great drops of blood. And he needs God's help to persevere in the garden. And of course he does. Not my will, but your will be done. So he willingly submits himself. He subjects himself to it because he loves his people. Revelation 1.5 says that Jesus loved us and washed us, how? From our sins in his own blood. It took blood to do it. It took his life to do it. And this is sacrificial love. This is unmerited love. This is an undeserved love. This is a love that Paul says in Ephesians 3.19 that surpasses knowledge. We can't figure it out. It's not rational to us. Our minds can't comprehend it. I think the pastor said it before. It's it beyond what we can grasp. And think about it for a second. Think about what the church was by nature before God saved us. Right? It was sinful as the rest of humankind. Right? She, she, the church, was, was like everybody else. When Adam fell, we fell too. Right? And the sin of Adam was imputed to us, as it was to all other men. Right? And we who are the church, we were totally depraved. And we only did evil continually. And we loved wickedness. And we were liars and adulterers and murderers and criminals and child molesters and rapers and, and haters and jealous and greedy and prejudiced. We were all around vile through and through. We were the dirty dozen 12 million times over. We were filled with blasphemy and deceit and filth, and we were often in the arms of another. We were like Goma, sleeping with everybody but a husband. And we loved our idols. We loved the world. We loved the, the gods that we made for ourselves. So we were like everybody else. We were children of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, and we were sons of disobedience. That was, that's what we were. One man said this. He said, between the brightest saint in heaven and the darkest sinner in hell, there is not a difference except that which Christ has made. Who can boast? Who can boast? So we were altogether impure, and there wasn't a shred of beauty in us to attract us to Christ. It wasn't like, oh, there's such a good-looking people out there. 
Nothing. In fact, everything about us should have repelled his love from us. We were the ugliest girl at the dance. We were the grossest looking guy in school. We were immersed in the sewer and stench of sin. Yet, divine love said in Job 33, 24, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. And not only were we unlovable before he saved us, but humanly speaking, we're not the most lovable group even now as the church. I mean, at times we're unbelieving. At times we're torn with strife and vexed with disunity and schisms and divisions. At times we're marred with murmuring against God. We complain. Guilty of pride, envying others, backbiting, compromising, giving into heresies every now and then, watering down the gospel, holding to erroneous doctrines. And at times we act like the world. We try to look like the world. We try to dress like the world. And we champion the world's issues, social issues over the gospel. Yet for all these sins and who knows how many more, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now I want you to notice the text does not say, it doesn't say that Christ loved the world and gave himself for her. It says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You see, he didn't come for the world. He came for his sheep. He came for his sheep. He came, as John 6.37 says, for all those that the Father had given him. And all of those, he says in verse 44, uh, uh, that, that he would raise them up on the last day. So he didn't die for all men, but he died for the elect, for his sheep, for the church. And it's his sheep that he has loved with an everlasting love meaning that he has loved them eternally, eternity past, whatever that means, and forevermore, whatever that means. The love that Christ has for his people did not begin when we believed, and it did not begin when he died, and it did not begin when he came into this world. No, his love has no beginning. He has always loved you. He has always loved you. You can't change. He's immutable. It's not like there came a point in time and he said, I'm gonna love Steve Schultz. No, he has always loved Steve Schultz. Way before anything was ever created, he has loved Steve Schultz. He has always loved us. It has no beginning. And he not only has always loved us, he will always love us. We just didn't know it until he saved us. We didn't know it. So Christ loved ugliness, and he came to change it into beauty. He changed an ugly sinner into a beautiful saint and he did it at the cross. You see, the church was not fit for Christ as a bride by nature. So he came to make her fit by grace. He couldn't have fellowship with sin. He could not be unequally yoked. Therefore, her, the church's sin, had to be dealt with. Her debt had to legally be taken away. I remember years ago, Christian man came to me, brother in the Lord, and he said, I met the girl I'm going to marry. I said, I met her. I said, well, amen to that. He said, I'm in love with her, and I'm going to marry this girl. I said, great. And he found out over some time that she was in great debt. She had racked up uh, quite a tally on some, some, some school loans. And he told me, and I said, whoa, what are you going to do about that? I figured maybe now the vision will change a little, you know, be a little sharper, the vision. And and he said to me, he said to me, he said, I love her, and I'm going to marry her. 
and I'm going to pay down, and I'm going to eliminate her debt. She's the woman I love. So he loved us so much that her debt became his debt. Well, Christ loved us so much that our debt became his debt. Again, in Ephesians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin for us. He took, on, he took on what we owe God, and so he would pay it for us. He tasted death for us. He bore the curse of the law for us. He plunged himself into the dreadful darkness and awful anguish of Calvary for us in order to save a rebellious people, right, who, who he loved, gathering them from all nations to dwell in their heart through the Spirit. So he, he paid off our sin debt at the cross, and he made us free. He made us free from our enslavement, our enslavement to sin. And as Romans 6.18 says, we went from being slaves of sin under the penalty of sin, and now we're slaves to righteousness. Now we're slaves of Christ. How many times does Paul say, I'm a bond servant or I'm a slave, doulos, of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, we're either a slave to sin and Satan or we're a slave to Christ. Everybody's a slave. I want to be the slave to the one who loves his people. So then, all that Jesus Christ is, he gives to the church. He is the God of love, and he loves his church. And his love for the church is timeless, it is unwavering, and it is sure, and it is certain. And it is past finding out because it has no boundaries. And the question for us is, what more could we want? Think about it. Christ loves us and gave himself for us. What more could we want? Right? What do we need to fill us or to complete us that his love for us doesn't already do for us? Like, what's missing? What do I need in my life that Christ died for me and loved me doesn't suffice, doesn't satisfy, doesn't fill? Is his love not enough to make us always happy? Is it not enough to make us content? Is it not enough to keep us focused on what's to come, the hope, the hope of glory, being with Christ forevermore? Is it not enough for that? Is it not enough to make us a joyful people always? Is it not enough to make us thankful and grateful? Brothers and sisters, you know we are commanded not to complain because complaining means that somehow God made a mistake with us, right? But when you're saturated with the love of God and who he is and what he's done for you and how Christ came for you, it makes everything else very small and insignificant in the big picture. And there's a big picture, right? I remember reading, and I don't know who the guy is, and so I don't know his name, and I don't know who wrote it, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. So take it for what it's worth. But there was a guy, theologian, uh, 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 at some college, some seminary, and uh, very well respected, and he's on his deathbed, and the students are around him waiting to, to hear some dying words of wisdom. You know, from a dying man, he's going to probably utter some, some pearls that they could use for the next 30 years. And so they're around him, and here's what he says. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. At the end of the day, that's it. That's it at the end of the day. Now let me say to anyone here who isn't born again, not a born again believer, you do not know what it means to be truly loved until you know the love of Christ. I can't even explain that, but I just know it's true. You do not know what it means to be loved, to be truly loved, until you know the love of Christ. People want so desperately to be loved, do they not? 
right? They want to they want to be loved because they don't experience it here. And it's and you know, people only love you if you love them back. There's no unconditional stuff going on there usually. Right? They only love you if you love them back. And here is perfect and flawless and unconditional love in Christ. And yet so many reject him. They don't want it. Why? Because deep down they love their sin so much that they don't want to part with it. See, the, 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 their sin, the sin, their love for sin trumps the perfect love of Christ. And yet the reality is the love for sin, it never satisfies anyway. It always falls short. And yet Christ is offered to men even today. And perfect love is offered to men. And men turn a blind eye and walk away. I don't want to give up my sin. I love my sin. Now for those of us who know the love of Christ, it's only natural for us to love him. We didn't start out this journey by saying, I'm going to love Christ. That's what I want. We didn't do it that way. We didn't want him. We didn't love him. We were probably running from him, running far. But it's only natural now to love him. And, and you can't be a Christian and not love Christ. I mean, it's just, you can't do it. You can't be a Christian and not love Christ. And Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema, i.e., in our lingo, let him go to hell, is what he's saying. And Paul will end this, this letter in Ephesians. He'll end it this way. He says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. In sincerity. So don't say you love me. He says, show me you love me. Show me you love me. Let me see the evidence that my spirit is in you is that you love me and the evidence is you live for me. And so the proof of Christ's love for the church. Secondly, the purpose of Christ's love for the church. Verses 26 and 27. He says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now we read for what end. Verse 26 says it was to sanctify and to cleanse her. And verse 27 says it's so that he could present her as a perfect bride to himself when he comes again. So first, he died for the church to sanctify and cleanse her. And sanctify means to set apart. In Hebrews 13, 12, we read that Jesus sanctified his people with his blood. Hebrews 10, 10 says, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So he sets us apart from sin uh, and from the penalty of sin. And he's also sanctified us positionally. Uh, he sanctified us positionally, meaning that when he saved us, he set us apart from the old man and made us the new man. He set us apart from the wages of our sin. He set us apart from the kingdom of Satan and placed us into the kingdom of God. So he positionally set us apart, which was a past completed event. But he is also continuously sanctifying us, practically speaking, meaning he is growing us in holiness. He is making us more like himself and less and less like the old us. He is turning his bride more and more into the godly woman she was saved to be, the bride of Christ, right? And, and she is being set apart by Christ and for Christ. He took her out of the pit of worldliness and he has placed her into his own loving care. And she is going through a process, a moral and spiritual preparation for her presentation to a bridegroom. So she, the church, is no longer a woman of the world but she has now been set apart by Christ and again for Christ. 
Well, Jesus died to sanctify her and to cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And cleanse her means to make her clean, clean from the guilt of her sin, uh, clean from the defilement of sin. When Ananias went to Saul of Tarsus, who was Paul, after his conversion, he said to him in Acts 22.16, he said, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And this cleansing was prophesied back in Zechariah 13.1 where the Lord said, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And we see this cleansing promised in Ezekiel 36.25 concerning the new heart where he says that God says that I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So this cleansing is a taking away of the filth and the judgment of sin. And we were cleansed with the washing of water by the word of God. Not with literal water, but the water of the word, i.e. the gospel, which is the word of God. So it was the word of God that God used to bring us to faith. The word cleansed us. We heard it, we believed it, and we believed it to the saving of our souls. Jesus said to his disciples, uh, in John, John 15, 3, in the night of his arrest, he said, you are already clean. This is the 11. Because of the word, because of the word which I have spoken to you. They believed it. So then it is the word of God applied by the spirit of God to our hearts that sets us apart and cleanses us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul lists nine different sins. Some of them are sexual, others just sins of the heart. And he says, he says that those who do those things he says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says in verse 11, because he's talking to the saints, he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, and such were some of you. And then he says, why they're not that way anymore. He says, but you were washed. You were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Washed, cleansed, made clean spiritually. Paul says in Titus 3.5 that, that we were born into the family of God by the washing of regeneration and by renewing of the Holy Spirit. So we were sanctified and cleansed through the cross by the gospel to bring us to spiritual life. And just as the blood of Christ cleanses us from the guilt and penalty of sin, so now, so now the, the word of God continually cleanses us from the defilement and the pollution of sin. So Christ is now cleansing his church through the ministry of of the word, through the ministry of the word. And this is why doctrine is so important. This is why exegetical preaching, which is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book preaching is so important. This is why we must be people of the word and we must be churches that faithfully declare the word of God. And on an as, as an aside here, I am excited for you guys and, and blessed that I know you have solid elders who stand on the word. So I know you're being fed well and protected well. So we need to be people of the word. We need to rightly divide the word in order to be able to understand it. And listen, we're not being washed by the word if we're being taught faulty doctrine or we're listening to faulty teaching or we hold to faulty and erroneous views of the things of God. Well, the reason... The reason Jesus came to sanctify and cleanse the church is so that he might present it to himself, we read, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy 
and without blemish. And presenting her to himself is speaking about when he returns uh, and the church is perfected uh, and, and made glorious and without any marks of sin. You see, the moment you were born again, the moment you were born again, your soul was made alive or redeemed or resurrected, if you will. But your body still sins, right? Because your body is not resurrected. It is not perfected yet. It has not been redeemed yet. Romans 8.23 says, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for the redemption of the body. And that will happen when Christ comes again, when he comes again and resurrects our bodies and glorifies our bodies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.42, the body is sown in corruption. The physical body goes down. It is raised in incorruption. In verse 44, he says, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So the purpose of Jesus' death was to perfect his bride, body and soul. Body and soul. And the soul is perfected first at conversion. And then the body at Christ's second coming. And that is when, as we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that we will see him and we will be like him. Not that we're going to be God, but that we're going to have glorified, resurrected bodies and souls, just like he has now. That is when Jesus will present the, the bride to himself. And, 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 and this is the last stage of their redemption from, from, from election before time began, now to glorification. That's the last stage. And, and, and they will be without spot, which means no stains, Nothing to soil them. Peter uses this same word in 2 Peter 2.13 to describe false teachers. He calls them spots and blemishes. So they're not pure. They're not clean. They are not without defect. But when Christ presents his bride to himself, she is without spot. We read in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7, that the beloved said to his bride, you are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. The beloved Jesus says to the church, there is no spot in you. Well, not only will the bride be without spot, but she will be without wrinkle. And that describes something either like fabric or like skin, which has a lot of lines in it and creases in it and whatnot. And I don't know, I haven't seen it lately, but a couple of months ago, all I was seeing on, on, on Facebook was this app that everybody was plugging into with a picture of themselves today to see what they look like 30 years from now. You know what I mean? And like, why did you want to do that? You know? I just said to myself, just look at their mother or father. You want to see what you're going to look like in 30 years? Look at your parents. I mean, that's what you're going to be. It could save you a lot of time and money. But, but that's what it means. It means to have wrinkles, to be, you know, it's like when, when, oh, when my wife washes my shirt and I take it out of the thing, it's, it's all wrinkled up. But the bride of Christ is going to be free from that, free from all imperfections. She'll be holy, which literally means free from faultiness. And this reminds us of, of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, they had to be without blemish. Right? They had to be without imperfections. If they had anything wrong with them, if they were diseased or sick or lame or had spots or cuts or whatever, right? they, were, they, were, they were rejected as an offering because God would only take a perfect offering. So the end goal then of Christ giving himself for the church is to present his people, the church to himself. That's the end goal. And by the way, they are from every tribe and tongue, and people, and nation. And that's just a mind-blowing thought. 
and, and to bring them to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me. I want to talk about that marriage supper for a bit. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Let's look at verses 7 to 9. I'll read it and then try to explain it a hair a bit. So in Revelation 19 verse 7, we read, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife, the church, has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what will, will help us to understand the marriage of Christ to his bride is if we understand the stages of marriage in biblical times. And there were three stages of marriage, right? The first stage was called the betrothal, the betrothal stage. Uh, and what that was was like a contract that was written and signed by the parents of the bride and the parents of the bridegroom. Uh, and so, but once that contract was signed, they were legally married. That's it, you're legally married. Uh, but they didn't come together. They didn't consummate the marriage for about a year or so, during which time the wife, or the, she would go back and live with her parents and the bridegroom would go back and live with his parents. Uh, and also the bridegroom had to give a dowry to either the bride or to the bride's parents. Mary and Joseph were in this stage of betrothal when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, which is why legally he could have had a stoned death or divorce her, which is what he wanted to do. The second stage happened about a year later uh, when the bridegroom and his groomsmen would take the trek from the bridegroom's house uh, to the bride's house and they would do it at midnight and they would have these lamps with oil in them, with wicks and they would be lit and they would go through however far it was and it would make sort of like this parade, this lit up parade at nighttime going to the, to the bride's house uh, and with those torches. Uh, and, and they would get to that house and then the bride and her bridesmaids, or called the virgins, would be ready for them and they would join the parade with their lamps lit up with their oil and they would now then take the trip you know, to, 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 to the bridegroom's house. And we see this depicted in the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25. The third stage was the marriage supper. And that was at again the, bridegroom, the, bride, the bridegroom's house, uh, which would go on for days. It wasn't like our thing, you know, we go for three hours or five hours to a reception and we're done. No, this went on for like a week. Uh, and... and and this is when the bride and the bridegroom would come together. And we see this depicted uh, in John chapter 2 uh, with the wedding uh, at Cana. And Revelation 19 pictures this third stage. Right? This is what the, the marriage supper is. And it implies that the first and second stage are already completed. Now, now how we can apply this to Christ and his church is the first stage is when the believer is brought to life and places their faith in Christ. That's the betrothal stage, right? That's the betrothal stage. The moment one is born again and then, and then is given the gift of salvation, that is the betrothal. And the dowry that was paid in this case uh, was to the bridegroom's parent, which is God the Father. And the dowry was from Christ to the Father and it was his own blood shed on the, on the bride's behalf. And from the time of salvation to the time that Christ comes back again, the church is betrothed to Christ. We are legally married to him, but we are separated from him till he comes again, so we're not yet with him. But we are his, and he is ours. So we're watching, and we're waiting 
for the bridegroom to come. And we know that he's coming. And we know that he's coming with all of his angels and that the trump will sound and we will be raised incorruptible. And as Titus 2.13 says, we are looking for, paying attention to, waiting for, thinking about, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, we're waiting, we're waiting for this thing to be consummated. Uh, Romans 8.23 says, we are eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. 2 Peter 3.12 says, we are waiting for our Savior to come from heaven. We are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We're waiting for it. We can't wait for it to happen. And as Philippians 3.21 says, we are waiting for our Savior to come from heaven who will transform our lowly body that it might be conformed to his glorious body. So we see the proof of Christ's love for the church. We see the purpose of Christ's love for the church. And thirdly, the union from Christ's love for the church. And we see that in verses 39, 29 to 32. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Well, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her so that she would be set apart and prepared to present to himself in glory. But what has come from this love is the greatest, most intimate union of all. And as we said, Paul is using, using the union of marriage as a picture or an analogy of the union of Christ and his church. In verse 29, he said, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Why? Why is that? Because we are members of his body. We are members of his flesh and of his blood. Ephesians 1.23 says, the church is Christ's body. It is his body. Colossians 1.24 says that Christ's body is the church. Romans 12.5 says, we being many are one body in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.27, he says, you are the body of Christ. So we are members of his body, and because of that, he nourishes and he cherishes us, just like husbands ought to nourish and cherish their wives. Well, Christ does that for us. He nourishes and cherishes us. And he nourishes us with his spirit and giving us his grace through his presence, through his word, by giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. Listen, he nourishes us with these spiritual blessings that grow us and draw us closer to him because that's when we are happiest. That's when the joy is full, the closer we get to him. And he cherishes us that his heart is warm and tender toward us. Listen, he highly values us. The world could hate our guts. People could not even look twice at us. I'm telling you, he highly values us. We are extremely important to him. We're his merchandise, so to speak. We're his body. We're his people. He came for us. Our names were, were written on his heart and, and, and on the, his handprints. They're there. He's up there for us. And because we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones, he loves us. And this is language that Adam used when he first saw Eve, his wife, the same language. He said in Genesis 2.23, he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We are part of Christ just as Eve was part of Adam. And as a man 
as a man leaves his, his mother and father and is joined to his wife and becomes one with her, so too, so too, when we were separated from the world and to Christ, we became one flesh or one body with him. And this union, this union between Christ and his church is a far greater mystery than the union of husband and wife. And the, and the husband and wife is kind of a mystery if you think about it. But the union of Christ and the church is far greater. He says so in verse 32. He says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. And it's a great mystery because although Christ is now in heaven right now in his humanity, sitting at the right hand of God, fully God, fully human, we have been, as Ephesians 2.6 says, raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And it's in some mysterious way. I cannot explain it. Don't ask me. But we are. And remember that Jesus is a man. He's God, but he's a man. And he is like his brethren in all things, except he had no sin. He knew all the pains of our nature. He knew the poverty of our nature, hunger, thirst, sorrow, reproach, slander, treason, right? He knew it all. He knew it all. So he is God, but he is also man with a human nature. And because he is a man with a human nature, we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We couldn't be united to him if he wasn't a man. That's why we're united to him. What he did was he took our nature into union with himself. Hebrews 2, 11 and verse 17 says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. If he's not made like us, we don't identify with him, and he doesn't identify with us. So Jesus was made a man like us, just like us. And as a man, he died in our place and was buried and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven where he now reigns. So what he has done is, is he has made our nature, his nature, and his nature, our nature. And this is a verse that just blows me away. It's 2 Peter 1.4, and it says that we are partakers, partakers of the divine nature. That's what we are. The Spirit of God lives in us. And our union with Him assures us of our salvation. And it assures us of the glorification to come, the finality of our salvation. And we know that Christ will not share His glory with another. We read it today. He will not share His glory with another, but He'll share it with us. And you know why He'll share it with us? Because we're one with Him. We're one with Him. Well, in closing, let me leave you three things that every believer should desire. Three things that every believer should desire. The first thing, uh, the first is that we should desire to be his bride and not his date or not his girlfriend. We should desire to be his bride, which is what we are. And what I mean by that is when you're married to someone, that requires total commitment. Right? When you're dating someone, you're kind of like a free agent. Call, not call, show up, not show up. Angry, not angry. Right? Write a letter, not write a letter. Go out for dinner, not go out for dinner. You can do those kind of things. Do what you want. You do as you please. But when you're married to someone, it's a whole different ballgame. And when you're married to Christ, your focus in life becomes Christ. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, he said, for me to live is Christ. That's my, he goes, I don't know about you, he says, but for me, to live is Christ. This is my life. And then after my life, now that comes gain. To die is gain. His will and desire should be our will and desire. And, and, and we should follow him wherever he leads us. And every believer here needs to ask the question, 
Do I live like I'm married to Christ? Or do I live like I'm dating him? Do I live like I'm dating him? The second thing every believer should desire is to be a more beautiful bride. We should desire to be a more beautiful bride. What bride doesn't want the hair and the makeup artist to, to make her look as beautiful as possible? We've had, I mean, three or four, I don't know what you could call this. I'm, I was glad to be there, but I usually, um, I, I officiated a couple of weddings, and then for some reason, the ladies all came to my house like seven in the morning to do all of the stuff they do to make themselves ready for the, for the, for the wedding day. And I got to see it. I got to see the makeup people come in, the hair people come in, and, and all of that stuff. And, and, and it transformed everybody from good-looking to really good-looking, all right? And, and, and I marveled at it because when my wife and I got married, I wasn't allowed to see any of that stuff, all right? But, but I got to see it. And I said, look at that. Like, what, what, what bride doesn't want to do that, right? Get them in there. Uh, and so, so, so what bride doesn't want that, right? Uh, who doesn't want to be more attractive? Now, yes, Jesus loves us more than we can ever know, uh, and yes, we're lovely to him, even as we are right now. Of course, yeah, we are. But shouldn't we want to be more attractive and more pleasing, if you will? Shouldn't we want to? And the way we do that is becoming more like him. It is looking more like him. Is, is, is more attractive. Right? The way we do that, then, is by imitating him. He says, imitate God. Right? Walk in love. Walk in the light. Walk circumspectly. Right? All these walks mean that's your, your way of life. Obeying him makes us more attractive. And, and that's how we become a more beautiful bride. The more we are set apart from the world, the more our hearts are set on Christ, the more beautiful we become. And the beauty treatments, the beauty treatments that we need is to be continually washed by the word of God. There's our, there's our hair and makeup, right? To continually be washed by the word of God. Remember the story of Esther, King Azahurus. He, he's, he exiles his wife Vestry because she, she, she shames him when he calls her to the, to the court and she doesn't want to come. And he does away with her. And then his, his servants say, well, we got to go through all of the land and let's, let's find a bunch of beautiful women and one of them will be your wife. And so they grab Esther and we read that she's, she's in beauty treatments for two years before she ever sees the king. Beauty treatments for two years. Well, that's what we are. We're in beauty treatments for when the king comes back that we're as lovely as he, he said we are, all right? You know, the most beautiful Christian, the most beautiful Christian is the most holy Christian. Who's like, you want to have a, uh, a Miss Universe? We'll have a Miss Beautiful Christian. It's the one who looks most like Christ because he's the essence of beauty, right? The one who looks most like Christ is the most beautiful. That should be our goal and our aim to look more like him. The third thing, the third thing every Christian should desire is to function as Christ's body on earth. Again, his body is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God as we speak now. He is no longer walking this earth, sharing the good news of the gospel, calling men to repentance, eating with tax collectors and sinners. But we are his body and we are here now. And we need to be about his business. And his business is bringing the gospel to the nations and in making disciples of the nations. That's his business. Right? And, 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 and that we need to be light in a dark world and we need to be salt in a very decaying and flavorless world. And in order to do that, we need to be unified and submit to our head in everything. We need to put aside personal interests, personal goals and agendas and be fully committed to Christ's cause. And the question is, are you functioning as Christ's body on earth, individually and as a body? Well, yeah, the church does this and the church does that, but what do you do? Where are you going? 
How's your heart? Are you committed to the kingdom and advancing the kingdom for the glory of Christ? Or you got a lot of stuff going on, you have no time for this kind of thing. It's the question, are you busy being his body on earth? And are you functioning that way? Now to those who have no desire to know Christ, no desire to follow him, they do not want to surrender to him. To those who are not Christians this day, let me say to you before God that you indeed are filled with spots and wrinkles and blemishes and you are unholy and unclean. And you are all of those things because you are a sinner who continually sins against a holy and a righteous God and he will judge you for your sins. That's bad news, but it's the truth. And you will be found guilty by a holy God for breaking his law and he will condemn you to a place called hell or the lake of fire forever and ever. Now if I just said amen here, that would be a very dismal ending to this sermon. But Christ died for people who were filled with spots and wrinkles and blemishes and unholy and unclean. He died for all who would come to an end of themselves, see themselves as unholy, unable, unwilling to come to Christ on his terms. You do not love him. You cannot love him. You will not surrender. Your nature will not allow you to do that. And you need help. And you can't help yourself. And you go to Christ, repent of your sins, trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And you believe that when he was on the cross and he was nailed up there, that your sins were nailed up there with him. And when God was pouring out wrath on Christ for the sins he was carrying, he was pouring them out for your sin too because your sins were up there as well. And you gotta believe that. And that's gotta change your heart and change how you think. And if you do, then guess what? That means he has saved you and he has loved you and, and he will nourish you and cherish you and even then he is preparing you for that wonderful wedding feast, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ loves the church and that he gave himself for it. Lord, how an amazing thought that you would want a church, that you would want a bride, that you would want a people. And Lord, although we can't understand the depths of it, we believe it. We pray that our hearts would be riveted by it. We pray that we would live for your glory with a greater love for you in light of it. And Father, for the souls sitting here today that have not been born again, maybe even coming to church for years, but there's never been a change in the heart, no radical transformation. Lord, would you be pleased, Lord, to strike the gospel in their hearts, show them a great need, and show them a greater Savior, and save their souls for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.